You are listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. All right, good morning, guys. Hey, good morning. All right, my name is Todd. I'm um, privileged to open the Bible and uh, continue our series in Genesis. Introducing God will be in Genesis 8 and 9 today. And uh, we're introducing God and we're introducing him as the main character of this book and of our lives. And the first thing um, I want you to know about God this morning is God is not like a dog on a country road for any number of reasons, right? <laughs> but let me explain. You, you, maybe you, you, you city folk don't know what I'm talking about, but like if you are driving along on a gravel road, inevitably a stray dog will shoot out of the ditch and start following you like it's its only mission in life. And it will run, 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 and it will chase you down that road. But if you, if you ever want to have fun, stop. stop. Just stop and watch the dog be as confused as you'll ever see a dog be. He's like, well, what do I do now? It stopped. <laughs> like, it, it doesn't know what to do with the car. <laughs> it's happy to chase it every time a car drives by. It'll run, 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 chase it like it's, it's the only thing it's trying to do in life. But if you stop, it has no idea what it wants to do with that car. It'll sit there as, as puzzled as you are, just staring at a car. God is not like that. He does not chase people down and have no idea what to do with them once he gets them. He's not like that. And last week... We left off in Genesis chapter 7 with Noah on a boat. He is saved. The ark protected him from the flood. He's safe. But does he, is he just a guy who lives on a boat now? Like, I never thought I was the kind of guy who lived on a boat, but apparently that's God's will for my life. I just live on a boat, me and a bunch of, me and a zoo, just floating around. I guess that's my life now. And maybe, and maybe some of you feel like that this morning. Like, is, is God's only business with us to save us? Like, just get saved. That's why we go to church. Get saved. But then what? Well, I don't know. Like, does God have any business left with us other than just saving us? Does, is Noah just the guy who lives on a boat? Is God done with him? Does he, has he left him? He's like, what else do you want from me? I saved you. Does, does Noah have anything left to do with God? Thank you, God, for saving me. I'm moving on now. What we're going to see this morning is that God is very much involved in our life. He saved us. He is saving us. He will save us. He's involved in all of it. And we have response to him to be saved to continue to lean on him for salvation right now and to look ahead to him to save us in the future. There is still business to be done between us and God, and praise God he doesn't leave us. He doesn't save us just to abandon us. He doesn't just adopt us and then leave us and say, what do you want? You got my last name. What else do you want from me? He sticks around. He's a good God, and we love that about him, and that's what we're introducing this morning. We've got lots of text to get through, so let's get started. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Noah's on a boat, floating. Beautiful verse, but God remembered Noah. He remembers Noah. He's floating. He knows where Noah is. He hasn't lost track of him. You look down at the world, it would just be a big blue globe. <laughs> Water everywhere. And a tiny little brown box with the only remaining living people in the entire world. And God knows where they are. God knows where Noah is. He remembers Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed the rain from the heavens were restrained. The waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. 
and the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So Noah is on this boat for a long time. This is a long time. By the end of it all, he will have been on this boat for 370 days, stuck inside a boat, safe from the flood, but in a boat. <laughs> like, I've been on a car ride with my best friend and gotten sick of them after five hours. He's on a boat with his wife and his kids and their in-laws <laughs> situation for over a year. And, and to make further complicated, he also has a petting zoo <laughs> that he's in charge of, that he's keeping track of the whole time. This is a long time where, where it's been a long time since God did anything. All the excitement of getting saved and getting baptized and I'm a Christian and all that's done with and now it's just living on a boat. And where's God? You ever felt that? Like, all the excitement seems in the past, right? The getting saved part was really fun. It was, I remember that season. What's going on now? I feel like, where's God now in this? I just go to work. That's what I do now. I just go to work. I just raise my kids. That's all I do. I just have normal life stuff. But God remembered Noah. God is like a good dad. He didn't forget Noah. This, the Bible isn't saying that he's like, he's not like, you know, Kevin O'Connor's parents on a plane ride to Paris. They're like, Kevin! Home Alone reference, anybody? <laughs> he's not like, Noah! Oh, right! Oh, I, he's on a boat somewhere. I should probably f- track that guy down. <laughs> the, the, he didn't forget him. When, when the Bible talks about God remembering, it means he's about to actively do something that shows that he's never forgotten. He's about to do something that demonstrates he's never forgotten. He's like a good dad like who goes to work, and then comes home at the end of the day. He hasn't forgotten about his kids. He's going to work because he loves his kids. He's at work because of them. He loves them. He's there to take care of them. And his presence so dominates the house that the kids aren't like every morning, did dad abandon us? He left again. Five days a week, he just abandons us. He's a good dad. He comes back every day. The kids know they can depend on him. And while he's gone, when he doesn't seem to be physically present or moving in their midst, you can't hear his voice in your house. You know he's thinking about you and he's out there doing things. When the Bible says that God remembered Noah, it means he's about to move in a way that shows he's never forgotten him. He's about to do something that shows he's on his mind. And so what he does is he makes a wind blow. He makes a wind blow, very reminiscent of Genesis 1, a world covered in water, and the Spirit of God is hovering, hovering above the water. Same word, ruach, spirit, wind, breath. And like the word of God makes the water start to subside. The breath of the living God makes the waters, like Luke said, last week where we left Noah is a world where the waters are prevailing. Everywhere you look, the water's winning. Everywhere, water's prevailing over everything. Nothing can survive the waters. But just the simple breath of God makes the waters go away. Leaning into what God says, his word, the power of his breath brings life and it scatters the waters because they're God's waters. And it's his word. He can make the waters do whatever he wants. That's why they were prevailing. That's why he can make them go away. Whatever waters are prevailing in your life this morning, God's word can abate them. And it licks them up, like blowing, like the way that you blow on something that's wet and you want to dry it off, just like ladies with your fingernails, just dry. The wind licks up the water. It just, all the water, all the things that were prevailing against you just evaporate with the wind, with the breath of God, when we lean into God's word. 
And I love what scripture, what Moses is the author of Genesis here. I love what he points out. Look what the ark did. It came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. That word rest is literally what Noah's name means. If you remember from uh, the end of uh, chapter five, when his parents named him, they named him Noah because it means rest. Because maybe this is the one that will bring the world to rest, finally. And so literally what Moses says is that the ark Noahed on the mountains. It came to rest. It Noahed. It felt the relief of like, and the ark came to rest. It was been bobbed around and tossed about in winds, and everything seems to be outside is, is prevailing against it, but it comes to rest. And notice when it comes to rest, at verse 5, it says, the tops of the mountain were seen after that. So when the ark came to a rest, everything above the surface was chaos and turmoil. Everywhere you looked, things seemed out of control. But underneath the water, something unseen and sturdy was holding that ark in place. And it wasn't still moving anymore. It was fixed. We need to be like the ark, resting in God in an unseen, firm, fixed foundation that even though everything above the surface seems like it's out of control, underneath it all, we are at rest because we have a God who cares about us and does not forget us. And he moves in ways that make the turmoil evaporate before us. And so we want to rest in God, but resting in God is not doing nothing. Some of you hear like, oh, I need to rest in God. So that means I just need more bubble baths in my life. I just need to, that's what I need to do. I just need to do nothing. Resting is not doing nothing. And look at what Noah does here. Noah is resting in God. He's waiting, but waiting is not, not just sitting around doing nothing. Waiting is an active thing. Look what Noah does. Verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Things are about to, starting to grow again. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Noah is waiting, but he's not doing nothing. You see him, he's sending out birds. He's trying to get literally the lay of the land. He's trying to figure out what's going on around him. He's trying to, to, to see what's going on out there. He's not just sitting around just resting, doing nothing. Waiting is an active process. And what he's doing is the last thing God told him to do. Some of you are in a middle spot. You don't know what to do right now. Do the last thing God told you. What's the last thing you know for a fact he said to do? Do that and wait. <laughs> and just do that until you get the next thing because doing the last thing is preparation for the next thing. If you don't do the last thing, you won't be ready for the next thing. God is not a, a, an elementary school teacher that's like, you're too old to be in second grade. Move it on. <laughs> it's like, no, you have to get it. <laughs> We're not going to just move you on until you understand second grade. He doesn't just like, you can't be a 14-year-old in second grade. Move it along. He wants you to get these things. And so you need to be doing the last thing that God told you to do. And so the last thing Noah heard was, get on a boat. 
And God shut the door, and so he's on the boat. But he's preparing for the next thing. You see that? He's sending out the birds. He's trying to figure out what's going on out there. And you see the miraculous thing about this is that he starts to see that the land is starting to show, and gradually it's more and more land, but he's still waiting on the boat. Like, if you're Noah, how, long are you, how much are you desiring to get off of this boat? <laughs> At the first sight of land, I think you'd be ready to like, all right, that's our sign, let's go. But he waits, because God hasn't said anything. And it's been a while, but he's doing the last thing God told him to do, which was wait on the boat. I know for a fact that's where God wants me, is on this boat, and it's hard. Being here is hard. These animals actually smell. I'm not making this up. I'm not, making, I'm not in inventing things to complain about. <laughs> These people really do snore. These animals really do smell. There's stuff everywhere. There's no air AC, no shower. <laughs> it's gross inside this boat. We all smell. We're all sick of each other. But he's waiting because it's where he's supposed to be. And so he embraces the problems that are with where he's supposed to be as he prepares for the problems that will come with his new life, <laughs> as he prepares for the next thing that God wants him to do. So if you're in the middle, remember whatever your trials are, they are now, but they are not forever. Whatever you're going through, mentally embrace that. Know for a fact, whatever you're going through, it is now. Yes, but it is not forever. Anything that can't go on forever won't. When you've had that thought in your mind, this can't go on forever. If that's really true, it won't, because it can't. You just said so. If it can't go on forever, it won't. Remember that when you're in the middle. It's this middle part that's the hard part. Remember when you're in the middle that it won't be forever. And God's promises may not seem on the surface right now, but they're not never. They are coming, because they're promises from God who keeps his promises. He's a promise-keeping God, and we'll see more of that later in the text. Look at verse 15. Finally, after waiting all this time, God says something. He's been silent for a while. Noah's just been on a boat. Look what he says. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Get off this boat. <sighs> Get out of the ark. You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is, all, that is with you, all the flesh, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Everything is excited to get off this boat. The, the animals are as sick of Noah as he is of them. <laughs> Everybody's like, get me off of this thing. Thank you for saving us, but let's move on to the next phase of life. Thank you for saving me, but what's next? And that's what they're all moving on to. How easy is it for Noah to obey this command? You think about your relationship with God. When you think about obeying God, do you think of it as like always a difficult thing? Well, I have to obey God, so that means I'm probably going to have to do something I don't want to do. If you are a Christian, and I'm speaking to you, Christian, the Holy Spirit is helping you to want the things that God wants. There should be times where you read your Bible and it says to do something that you want to do. It shouldn't be the hardest thing in the world for you to do everything God wants you to do. There should be times where it is a joy to do what God says. When Noah says, get off the boat, you think Noah had a struggle? Be like, oh, I really don't want to, but I should obey my Lord and get off the boat. No, his heart was already off the boat, but he was waiting on God's word. His heart was already wanting to do what God was going to ask him to do, but he waited for God's timing on it. And Christian, that should be your experience. You should have times where you want to do what God says. Now, not all the time. There are going to be times where you have to obey because you, it's your Lord and you want to follow him. 
But at least we see in Noah that there should be times where doing what God wants you to do should be a natural outpouring of the new person that he's made you into. You're changing. And look, at and, and Noah begins a new life. He walks out of this old boat that he's become so familiar with and back into a new life, a world that's been washed clean, entirely different. And yet it's a very familiar world, right? Like if you had an address, the GPS would still show the same spot. It's the same world. And so that's, for many of us as Christians, it's the tension of like, I have the, I'm a new person. Something changed in me. And yet I'm looking at the same coworkers. I come home to the same address. I have the same in-laws I had before. A lot of life looks the same. But yet, on one level, everything is different. I've been through this experience. And so Noah is saved. He was saved, and he goes back into a world that looks a lot like the world he left. And so the tension of, like, how do I worship God now in the old world? In the world, I, how do I go back to that world and start over? Christian, God wants to be part of not just saving you, getting you into the ark. He has something for you now. And, and your only business with him is not just get yourself saved and then move back into old habits. It's go back to the old world with a new life inside of you. Be a new person in the old world. Be a new person in the old relationships at the old job. Because you are new, but things have looked rather the same. God's putting Noah back into the same world. He didn't just transport him to a new planet. He put him back into that same world and said, I'm with you now. I've saved you. Go live for me there. And so look what Noah does. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. God initiates, we respond. You see that throughout scripture. God does something, we respond to it. Here, God saves Noah. And what's Noah's response? He builds an altar. The first thing he does is build an altar. And you know, you're like, where, how is he going to sacrifice these animals? Because if you do that, didn't he say take two of two? And if you kill them, didn't you just killed off all the dogs? <laughs> like, we're, you're like, oh, yeah, right. But he did put two by two, except for the ones he put seven by seven. You guys remember that part? Yeah, like a lot of kids' Bibles leave that part out. It's like, why the extra animals? Why seven by seven of the clean ones? Because he was going to need them to sacrifice when he got off the boat. He needs something to eat, and he needs something to sacrifice. So God gives him extra clean animals. So God provides the thing that he commands you to sacrifice. God provided the thing to him that he would need later to worship God. But look what Noah does. The first thing he does is build an altar. He doesn't build his house. doesn't build up his bank account doesn't build up his friendship requests on social media. He builds an altar. The first thing he does after all this is get off, and he has a heart full of thank you. He's like, thank you, God, that I am not dead out there in the water somewhere. You saved me in a boat, and thank you. I don't deserve to have been saved, but thank you for saving me. And my life now is one of thank you to you. Look at Romans 12, verse 1. I have it up on the screen for you. After 11 chapters of theology and Paul laying out exactly all that God has done, he turns the corner in Romans 12, verse 1, and he says, okay, in light of all this, by the mercies of God, in view of everything that God has done, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. 
This is your spiritual worship. What is the response that we should have? God initiates. He's done all this. He's done the saving. He's provided the sacrifice. What should our response be? To give ourselves back to him. Noah didn't just put animals on an altar. Those, those, those sacrifices were representative of himself. He is a living sacrifice. He's like, my life is yours. You saved my life. My life is yours. And, and I'm going to live in light of that. I'm going to live as a sacrifice, which is much more difficult than dying as a sacrifice. Because <laughs> you just have to do that the one time. <laughs> if you want to give yourself as a sacrifice, every husband's like, oh, I'd take a bullet for my wife. You'd be like, yeah, that's, that's right. You should do that. But it would just be the one time, though. <laughs> Do you die to yourself daily for your wife? That's where it gets hard, right? Oh, again, I have to do the dishes again. I would rather do this. I don't want to help with the kids. I want to do this. I don't want to help with that. I want to do this. I don't want to die to myself. It's those little things that require daily dying, which are way harder because they're repetitive. It's like, I just did that yesterday. The living sacrifice is one that sacrifices by laying itself down and then gets up and serves the very God that it just laid itself down for. To live as a sacrifice is what Noah is doing when he lays down these these sacrifices on the altar. He's living as a sacrifice. And look at, God is not indifferent to it. Look at in in the passage, it says, the Lord smelled it and it was a pleasing aroma. The Lord saw what Noah was doing and it made him happy. It was pleasing to him. He enjoyed it. He's like, that's right, Noah, good job. And, and we see that even in Romans 12, 1, I had up there too. It's, it's holy and pleasing to God. God isn't indifferent to what we're doing. So it's not just like God initiates, we respond, but he doesn't really stick around to see what we do with it. Like he's like, well, I saved everything. Good luck, guys. Hope you get yourself saved. We'll see you later, maybe. Maybe not. Like God isn't just like, he's not, he doesn't just save people or set up a mechanism to save people and then walk away from it. He's not indifferent to what we do in response to him. And so God responds to Noah's response. And he's pleased with it. He enjoys it. He's not indifferent to it. But look at this. He's also not ignorant of who he's receiving. Did you see that in the text? So you kind of read over it, and you're like, well, that's a weird thing to say. Look what God said in his heart. I will never again curse the ground, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. If I don't promise to not do it, I would have every reason to do it again. He's not ignorant of who he's receiving. When Noah offers a sacrifice, he's not ignorant of the kind of person Noah is and what Noah will do. God isn't saying like, Noah, I know that your heart's evil, so I'm not, re- I'm not going to receive your sacrifice. He looks down and says, you are a sinner who is repenting. And that, that pleases me to watch sinners say, thank you for saving me. Thank you for being part of me. Please forgive me. God enjoys that. It pleases him. And so God receives sinners. But he goes further than that. Look, he blesses sinners. He doesn't just receive them. He's not just willing to allow them to be around him. He actually goes a step further. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish to the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every morning, or sorry, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. 
God goes further than just receiving a sinner back to him. He restores Noah to the place that people were made from. God made man in his own image for a reason. And he doesn't say, well, Noah, you had your chance. You're your people. You screwed this whole thing up. Let's let the apes have a shot at it. I mean, but let's them be in charge. I mean, maybe they won't mess it up the way you guys did. No, he restores Noah back to the state of dignity that is owed a man who is made in the image of God. He restores Noah and his family to the positions that they had, and he gives them a purpose again. He says, just like he did to Adam, he's like, Noah, be fruitful and multiply. I haven't changed. I don't have a plan B. There's not like a, that be fruitful and multiply thing didn't work out. You guys just multiplied sin, so let's, let's think of something else to do. No, plan A. If it was important enough to say the first time, it's important enough for him to repeat. Going back to our second grade analogy, if God has told you to do something, it's important enough that he brought it up. He's not just going to move off of it. Be like, well, he's never going to do that. Let's find something else for him to do. She's never going to do that. Let's find something else for her to do. No, he restores Noah back and gives him the same purpose. He fills his life with meaning. Here's what you're here to do, Noah. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with repentant sinners. Sinners who repent, not perfect people, sinful people who repent and live their lives before God knowing that. And he gives them the place. Look, I give you everything. He gives it all to them. It's like the whole world is yours, Noah. Fill it. There is no mountain that is not mine. Go and spread my name to it. Go wherever. Anything that you find that's mine, go there because it's yours. Go there and spread my name, my glory, the image that I've put in you. Spread it out. He restores his position at the top of the food chain. You see that? Before it was like, well, you can eat plants, but now like, now animals, they're all yours. All of them. I deliver them to you. He doesn't tell the animals that they can eat people. You see that? He's like, any animal that kills a person, it's game over for that animal. It's like, so for Christians, here's, here's a prayer. You're like, well, I don't know what that means. Practicality. Let's we'll just do pause on that sidebar. You're driving along. There's a squirrel. There's a kid. Hit the squirrel. Christians hit the squirrel, Right? Don't, don't hit the kid. They're more important than squirrels. That, that's the practicality of this. There shouldn't even be a question as to, like, well, I don't know. Squirrels are really valuable. No. Like, God likes squirrels. He put them on the boat. <laughs> like, he saved, the, he saved the animals, but then he turns around and says, but you, there is an order here. Don't, don't think that all things are equal. This isn't just like, a, well, a boy is a cat is a raccoon. They're not all the same thing. And that's why he saves things to their kind. And so the practicality of this is really, man, you are top of the food chain. Be responsible. Like, I've, I've given you a position. Be responsible. Be humbled by the fact that you are this. I didn't pick you because you're the best. You've clearly demonstrated that. I had to flush the whole world down the toilet because of you. Like, so don't get too cocky too quickly here. But, but make no mistake about it. I am restoring you to that place. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I am not... Being like, okay, I'll let you in, but I'm going to kind of sit with my arms closed. You can sit at my table, but we all know that I still have a beef with you. It's like, no, Noah, we're, we're good. The flood has made it square. Like, there is no more wrath left. You are re- restored to your position. Go, live in light of that. And then further than all that, he gives him back a purpose, a place, and a position. But then he gives him, on top of that, he just lavishes things. Our God is a God who does things he doesn't have to do. Do you understand that? We're introducing God. He is a free agent. He can do whatever he wants. And the kind of God he is is he chooses to make promises to people who don't deserve it. He does it. He initiates the promise. He, within himself, decides to do it. Look what he does in verse 8 through 17. He said, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant 
a promise. I promise you and your offspring after you and every living creature that is with you, the birds, livestock, beasts of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So look too, like God, God previously had said this in his heart, but God is a better husband than we are. Like we think, I love you, but we don't think to say it. Like we said, I love you 10 years ago on an altar in front of a priest and all our friends and family. Why should I have to, until further notified, just assume I love you. God is better than that. He thought it in his heart, but look, he says it with his mouth. That's a lesson for you. That's a little sidebar too. That's a little nugget for you guys. Go and say, if you feel loving thoughts towards people, you appreciate them, you respect them, tell them. Why would you sit on that? Tell them. God does. He tells him. He says what's on his mind, what's in his heart. He says, and then he, he wants him to know, I promise you, Noah. I promise you, I will never do this. And then God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So this is a universal, unconditional covenant. No strings attached. Everyone's included. No conditions whatsoever. I promise I will never do this ever again. And here is the sign. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Here's where this gets real practical, Christian, when you're like, well, has God just saved me and abandoned me? What's life like now? Can you imagine the first rain after the flood? Can you imagine that for a second? <laughs> like he's off the road, dry land. Yes, oh, look at this dryness, dust. Oh, no more water. And all of a sudden it starts to rain. Can you imagine the panic? You're like, I remember how this went last time. Last time it never stopped. <laughs> it just kept raining. And then it was coming up from the ground. It was like every source of water available was just flooding the earth. It's almost as if that's what happened. Can you imagine the panic of that? Christian, what do you do when things start to get hard? Like you do something silly or stupid or sinful. And, you're like, and, the, and the first sign of resistance comes into your heart or like, or like that first struggle, that first, the way the waters prevailed against the ark, all of a sudden something starts to prevail against you for the first time since you've been saved. You're like, I've been doing great. I've been reading my Bible, getting up. And all of a sudden you have a bad day and it starts to rain. And you're like, is, is it all over for me? Is, it, is he going to wipe me out? Because that's what happened last time. And I don't see an ark anywhere. And he didn't give me a heads up. Last time I had 120 years to build this boat. But what if there's no boat this time? What if that was my one shot? You ever have that feeling, Christian? Like, what if that's all over for me? What if I, I blew my shot? I got saved, but now I screwed up again. And it's starting to rain, and I'm nervous. God says, I promise you, the flood has absorbed the wrath. I promise you, the Son has taken the wrath. There is no condemnation, therefore, those who are in Christ. There is none left. There is no flood coming. If you are in Christ, there is no wrath coming for you. A good dad will discipline you, but, but that's a loving act. There is no wrath coming. There's no anger. There's no fury left. It's exhausted. It has been put on Jesus, on the cross. If you are in Christ, 
and it starts to seem hard, or you start to feel the tension of that rain, and you start to look around, it's like, or it smells like rain even. You know that smell? Like, it's going to rain. Oh, no. You can just start to smell the terror of, like, condemnation surrounding you. You're like, I can feel it coming in. I feel like I'm not doing enough. I feel like I'm not enough. Remember the flood for Noah. He's like, you know what? Remember, when it rains, that thing that, that first time now you have experiences with, when you see that, remember my promise right now. I will never do that again. And a sign of it is when it rains, what shows up? Rainbows. Every time it rains, that thing, that symbol that represents what happened to the wrath of sin, like Luke pointed out, how passionately God hates sin. Every time you see that rainbow, remember how passionately he loves sinners. That rainbow, like even just this earlier this week, I was walking home in the rain and it was starting, the sun was starting to come out and I started searching the skyline for it. Like, where is it? It's out there somewhere. There's sun shining. The rain is, is on the move. Like there's going to be a bow somewhere. There's a promise. Just like this wedding, wedding ring is a symbol of the covenant I made with my wife. It's a symbol. Every time I look at it, I'm like, that's right. And I don't remember it the way that I'm like, oh, right, I'm married. What am I doing at the singles bar? That's crazy. <laughs> like when God says in here, I will remember the covenant, he's not forgetting the covenant. I'm always in covenant relationship with my wife. I'm doing all kinds of things to reinforce that. But when I see this, it's a special reminder, and it's a special sign to everybody else. This guy is married. It's a reminder to me. God is setting this bow in there, not because he needs a reminder. He doesn't need a wake-up call from room service because he's like, oh, right, I might forget about that and get, have a bad day and flood the earth on a, on a whim. It's like, no, I have promised, and this is a symbol for you to remember that I remember. When you, see, when you see the rainbow, remember that I don't forget. Remember you know that I do not forget. So he provides assurance, unforced, totally of his own free will. He decides to offer that to Noah. Then he provides the symbols, an ongoing. He's not like, I just didn't save you the once. I'm, I'm going to continue to save you, Noah. Every time you see the rain, every time you feel the tension of, look at the rainbow, remember. And then they all lived happily ever after. Some of you have read your Bibles before. That's not how the story ends. The kid's Bible ends there. <laughs> Let's get adult all of a sudden, okay? You ready? <laughs> you ready? Some of you, this will be brand new for some of you. I'm very excited to introduce you <laughs> to this part of the story. All right, verse 18. Let's keep going. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. That's just a preview. He's like, he's just giving you a heads up. Remember Canaan? That doesn't work out so well if you've read the rest of your Bible. It's just a little heads up here. Okay, verse 19. These three were sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, just like Adam, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. The yeah. so Bible's like, he began to drink some of the wine. Yes, some. <laughs> How much wine do you have to drink to be naked in your tent? <laughs> oh, my word. Yeah, he, he drank some wine. Yeah, sure. Okay, so he's uncovered in his tent, so he's naked and drunk, great. Okay, so verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, again, we're gonna, he's going to keep reminding you of this because Moses is writing this from a future vantage point. He knows how some of these things play out. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So he sees his dad naked and is like, guys, you've got to see this dad's drunk and naked. It's crazy. <laughs> then Sham and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their shoulders. So the two brothers take a garment lay it on their shoulders, and they walk backwards, and they did not see their father's naked. So they hear Ham's story. They, they run to it. They walk in backwards 
so they never see their dad naked, right? That's what they're, they're trying to not see what Ham is, thinks is a joke. When Noah awoke from his wine, he probably wasn't in a great mood, had a headache, and knew his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, and a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Well, that's messed up. (laughs) That ruins the whole story. (laughs) Like Noah is a good guy. He has faith in God. God saves him. He sacrifices on the altar. God makes this promise. So why is the last image we have of Noah drunk naked and cursing at his kids. That's messed up. Because if you're like me, I grew up, the story of Noah was this. It's the same thing that Luke pointed out in the kids' Bible. God doesn't like bad people, so he's going to send a flood to kill all of them. But he found one good person, so he put him on a boat and saved him. So if you don't want to die in a flood, be a good person. Right? That's the moral of the story, right? Be a good person, and then God won't drown you. How does that line up with this ending? If that's the story, if that's what the moral of the story is, be a good person, how does that line up with the guy who got saved in the boat, naked, drunk, and cursing at his kids? It doesn't add up, because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not be a good person. It's we have a good God who looked down on a world full of sinners Read Genesis 6 again. Everyone in the world's heart was always evil, all the time, always. Not except Noah. It says that then Noah found favor with God. God reached down and plucked one burning stick out of a fire and showed grace on it, not because the stick was less burnt than the rest of them, but because he wanted to show favor to a people and keep his promise that a serpent crusher would come. And if I kill all of them, there's, I can't keep my promise. So he finds Noah and he finds favor on him. And he plucks him and his wife and his kids and their wives out of that stream, that current of what Noah deserves. And then we see in Genesis 6, Noah becomes a different kind of person, right? The grace that saved him changes him. And he's the kind of person that now builds a boat when there's never been a flood. He's the kind of guy who builds a boat because God said so. But he's still the kind of guy that gets drunk and (laughs) yells at his kids. So he's not perfect. God did not save Noah because he's perfect, God did not start the world over and say, let's start over with a new perfect family. He started over with people that he knew. We saw early in our text, he knows what's in Noah's hearts. He knows it's in their family's hearts, but he knows that they are repentant sinners. And so if there's hope for Noah, there's hope for us. The good news is that God saves sinners and that he's not done with them after he saves them. He didn't just save them and then leave them to figure it out. He continues, he remembers Noah And so Noah can rest. He's at work. He's holding the boat above the water. He's keeping the water from overtaking the ark so Noah can wait. He saves Noah so Noah can sacrifice. Not not in order to save himself, but because he had been saved. Noah's sacrificing not in order for God to save him, but because he just did. He just saved him. And so his response is to sacrifice back to him. And because God promises, we can believe. God initiates, we respond. He promises, we can believe that. We can say, if we're in Christ, there is no condemnation 
awaiting for us. And that is what these tables surrounding here are. It's communion. It's the way we respond to the hearing of God's word. That same word that licks up turmoil and trouble and evaporates it when we wait and believe in it and rest in it, that same word became flesh and took on himself the waters that prevailed. He himself was the better ark that endured the flood and is an open door for anyone who wants to come in. Just like in the days of Noah, he sat there preaching, saying, get on this boat. There is no other way out. Luke pointed that out last week. There is no other ark. These, these tables represent the one way, but they also represent that his saving you is not a one-time deal that he walks away from. This is ongoing nourishment, sustaining these tables are what we need, not just in our past to save us from our past selves, but they need, we need this to save us from our present selves. And the power of God is that he saves us from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the power of sin in our current lives, and he will save us from the presence of sin altogether. When he comes back, all sin will be done with, and it will be dealt with fully and finally. And this table is a sign of that covenant, that he will keep his promise. How will he who provided his son not withhold how will he withhold anything from you if he provided that? So as the band comes up and plays, we will respond by going to the table. You will take off a piece of the bread, which is his body that endured the sin you deserved. And you will dip it in the cup, which is the blood that he spilled for our sin. And we will go to it proclaiming loudly that this is the only way, and I trust fully in it. So when the rains come, I go back to this. When the rains come, I remember this. It is a sign of the covenant. He has promised me that this thing absorbs the wrath, so I will believe it. And I will live my life right now as a living sacrifice in response to it because God is not like a dog on a country road. He doesn't just chase us down and then not know what to do with us. He has plans and a purpose and a place that he has put you in and a position that he's given you to live in light of that right now. He has not abandoned us. We have something to do for him, and he is still present with us. He's given us good work to do, and he's given us a way to remember. So as the band plays, please make your way to the table. If that is your confession, that this is your ark, and you will rest in it, and you will remind yourself the way that he remembers you through it, make your way to that and celebrate communion with us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just the story of Noah and that it turns out to be different than what we thought it was. I thank you that that's true. I love Jesus. I love storybook Bibles. I love kids' Bibles. I love rainbows and happy animals and smiling faces. Um, it's fun. But this, this story of your word shows us that there's more than just be a Christian, be happy. And if you're not happy, smile anyways. People don't need to know. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to make other people think that you're happy. God wants you to know that you are saved, that he is saving you, and that he will save you. God wants us to remember that this morning. The story of Noah is good news for bad people. That bad people who confess their badness and confess his goodness will always find an open ark and a safe place to endure the floodwaters, to endure the turmoil, endure the difficulties that come with life. A lot of times at the product of our own bad decisions, he will protect us from ourselves. You made that promise, Lord. Thank you. Help us to put our faith in Jesus as we take communion. Help us to remember what you did for us and the symbol that it represents. We love you. Thank you for providing an ark. Thank you for providing Jesus and security and salvation for sinners who repent. In your name we pray. Amen.